You know, I never knew Presbyterians tap their feet. <laughs> and I heard a lot of you tapping. This morning we're reading from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're going to be in the, uh, in the, in the fourth chapter. And, and in doing this, uh, I just, I actually, I want to bring to your attention that if you have not heard last week's sermon, you really should go back and hear that teaching because it draws heavily upon the, the whole purpose of why we come to church and more importantly, why we put our faith in Christ. And so in that teaching from the first part of chapter four, uh, Logan led us through the, the encounter Jesus had with a woman at the well. And one of the things that was really quite startling that he pointed out was how this woman had come during the midday hour, which was an odd time to be drawing water uh, from a well. In those days, the women usually came in the morning and the evening. We found out that one of the reasons why was because she had been living a life that it was apart from God. She had a profession of faith in God. She talked about where she might worship God. But when it came to her lifestyle, her lifestyle didn't represent what she believed. In other words, she had had five husbands. And Jesus said, the one that you are living with now is not even your husband now. And so you can well imagine how, uh, how revealing that kind of conflict would be. Uh, how would you like someone going through your laundry this morning? Uh, that's kind of what it must have felt like. And so as we read chapter 4, verses 31 through, through 42, I do want to thank those of you who have offered to read the scriptures for us. As you have noticed, as we've preached through John, it's very hard to break John up into dissectable pericopes or sections. And the reason for that is John is written as a narrative. And so preaching from a book that's a narrative is like, uh, well, it's like starting a a, a bestseller and fitting it, trying to fit half a chapter without knowing the rest of it. And so this morning I'm going to do my best in closing out chapter 4, beginning with third, verse 31. And I invite you now to hear the word of God. Uh, and I'll, I'll need my glasses to read. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you, do, you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone, uh, could someone have brought him food? Uh, My food, said Jesus, is, not to, is, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Uh, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans of that town believed Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is the word of God. Would you pray for me? Let's pray together. All that we might know that you are the Savior of the world. That you might quench our thirst and satisfy our hunger. And for that reason, bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts. That we may truly walk with you and follow you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't know this, but uh, many of you have probably shared this passion, uh, but Jesus was a foodie. Did you know that? Some of you are looking like, what? Jesus was a foodie. What do I mean by that? Jesus was someone who talked about food a lot. And for all the money I can tell you, I wish I had been able to follow some of you last Sunday because we had a number of guests who were standing out in front of the church and they were arguing about where they were going to eat. Uh, some were asking me, where do you think a good restaurant is? And I said, well, have you tried toast? And they said, yeah, we tried that. We were looking for something different. And I said, well, how about on, on the nines? Is that at the Mooresville Golf Club? Is that what it's called, on the nines? And they were like, well, yeah, we want one. They said, I said, you better call there because it's real popular on Sunday. And they called, and they said, no, we're not waiting an hour. Forget it. We're not doing that. And then I said, well, have you tried this restaurant or that restaurant? And they said, no, but we tried this one. And I said, oh, you've tried that one? What's that like? And they said, well, we tried the, uh, the milk and bread restaurant that opened in, in Davidson. And I said, did you like it? They said, oh, it was great. Well, we went for lunch, and I thought it was okay. So when you think about, <clears throat> when you think about food, you begin to think about this whole business of sustaining our life, what sustains us. And the real question for that <clears throat> in our bodies is basically what we eat from the table. That sustains our physical body, but what sustains you spiritually? What keeps you going in the midst of despair? What helps you through the difficult times? What in the whole of your life motivates you to enjoy life and understand why you're here and what purpose your life has? And so when you and I begin to wrestle with that kind of question, it becomes very important because when Jesus comes into our lives, he asks us, what kind of food are you eating? What is it that you are having on your plate that is to satisfy you, that is to make you uh, ready to live life, not only now but for eternity? In other words, the rest of the days that we have been given. And so when you and I begin to think about this whole business of food, it, it's very appropriate that the disciples are coming back to Jesus and they're coming back to him for one reason. They have been looking for physical food to feed him. He had said, and they probably went to Hardee's or someplace local to pick up a couple of uh, uh, whatever that would be popular in those days and they probably made it as fast as they could. But when they got back, they found him talking to a woman who was alone and was a Samaritan. And Logan pointed out how incredibly odd that was. First, he was alone with a woman, 
And secondly, that she was a Samaritan. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were undesirable people to be with. They were the people that you don't want to associate with. And yet when he came to greet the disciples and they said, Jesus, we brought you food, he said, I've already had food. And he said, it's not just any food, it's the food that you do not know about. Well, what, what is he talking about? That's what they said. Did somebody feed him while we were gone? Did somebody give Christ the meal that we were preparing for him? I don't know if y'all men have been late for supper, but let me tell you, you're late for supper, you're in trouble, right? You know, after your wife has gone or your husband's gone to all that trouble, for those of you women who have men that are lucky enough to cook for you, they go to all that trouble to set the table and you get to the table and they're so excited and they want you to go, ooh and ah, right men, right, right? Well, isn't it amazing when you show up late to a meal? And what's even more surprising to me is how even when I cook at our house, I am constantly worried about whether the meal tastes good. So I'll ask my wife and daughter until they almost get nauseated with me and say, don't ask me again how it was. Well, why am I so concerned? I'm concerned because I want them to be satisfied. I want them to be uh, filled so that they can go from the table and go into their life completely ready to take on the challenges they face. And so you can well imagine the confusion of the disciples as they come to Jesus and they say, we have your food, and he says, I have something, and you don't know about it. Well, did he hide it under his cloak? What food is he talking about? We're going to see that this food that Jesus talks about is his is Jesus. He's the food. In chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, I don't want to take anything from the sermon we'll have in a couple of Sundays about that, but when you think about bread of life, one of the things that my wife has taught me is you can have the worst meal, you can have the toughest steak, you can have the most overcooked shrimp on your plate, but if you have good bread, you got a meal. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And the implication is that when we feast upon Christ, we will be satisfied. Why didn't the disciples know about this? Well, maybe they were too busy. Maybe they were overwhelmed with the jobs they had in following Christ and being his disciple. Maybe, maybe they knew about it. They just completely forgot that the, the real substance of life, the real power for their living came from the word. They, they trusted Christ enough to want to be his disciple. But when it came to feasting on the word, something more was happening here than they saw. You see... They assumed when they came back that Jesus was doing something unusual. For him, it was incredibly normal. And it reveals to us something about Jesus that you may have forgotten. That Jesus says, first, I have come to do the will of my Father. The will of my Father. You say, well, 
what's the will of my father? You know, I, growing up, I used to think, God, just show me what you want me to do with my life. Give me your will. And I used to think, you know, if God would just give me a blueprint of my life, you're going to go here, do that, then you're going to go here and take care of this. And I would just be overwhelmed searching for some purpose or meaning that it would satisfy me, that would just make me feel important and incredibly useful, right? Did you know that, uh, that we're actually seeing a generation now that, that wants to be that way? This past, uh, this past week, I was in Montreat. I was, I was with a vice president of evangelism with an InterVarsity crusade, and we were talking about the generational differences we're seeing in our culture. Uh, if you were born before 1964, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Before 1964. Do you know that your most important question is what is true? If you were born after 1964, you don't believe there is truth anymore. Now you think about that. The generations that we've seen come into our, come into our days are people, your children, your grandchildren, your niece, your nephews, your neighbors. They are people who are trying to be satisfied to satisfy the spiritual hunger of their hearts, but they do not believe there is a truth. It may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And so the question is, where do I find spiritual sustenance? And we're seeing it in our culture today. People are searching, hungry, for something to give meaning to their life. And the scriptures say that you and I were given breath of life to do the will of God the Father. And we now have a whole generation that doesn't even know who the Father is. And that's a general statement. There are some. For Jesus to do the will of the Father was not that his will would be done but thy will would be done. And we saw that this morning when we were, t when we were opening our service with uh, the, the tremendous uh, psalm, the Psalm 23rd, the Lord is my shepherd. What are we saying? We're saying that we're not looking to ourselves to shepherd our lives. We're looking to one who can shepherd us better than we can do our own lives. Now think about that psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What am I saying? I am going to be satisfied with what God offers me. And therein lies the real problem of the human heart. Whatever generation you're a part of, you and I have hearts that are idle factories. We have a tendency as human beings to search for the eternal significance, not in God, but in our filling the hole that we have that was meant for God by filling it with money or fame or sex. And so what's happening in our culture? If God is no longer the center of people's lives, if our culture has said there is no God or we cannot know him or there is no truth, then they fill their lives whatever they feel at the moment brings value or meaning. And it's like eating carbohydrates. You ever eat a carbohydrate? 
It just makes you hungry for more. Have you noticed that? You have a big steak dinner, and you just eat the steak and a couple of vegetables, green vegetables. You wake up the next morning, you're, you might be a little hungry. You might just be a tad bit starving, maybe. But boy, if you eat that baked, if you eat that steak with a big old baked potato and you load it with butter and sour cream and you put bread on the plate, you wake up the next morning, you're starving. Why? Because of what you filled in your tummy. Jesus says that he is the kind of food that will satisfy you. Whereas in our hearts, being the idle factories that we have, we fill everything in our lives with junk, and then we're starved from the inside. That's what happened to this woman at the well. That's why she had five husbands. What was she looking for? Love. And she was looking for it in the wrong places. There ought to be a country song to that, don't you think? <laughs> and she was looking for it in earthly ways. She was trying to satisfy a spiritual hunger with earthly measures. That's what's happened to our generation, and it will continue to happen until they come to that one who is the bread of life. Jesus says, I've come to do the will of my Father. What is the will of our Father? It's in the Ten Commandments. Can you name them? It's amazing. We pride ourselves as being Christians, but we oftentimes forget that the Ten Commandments show us what real hunger is. When you are... When you are told you shall have no other gods before you, immediately I've already blown that idea because I talked about the fact that we are people who constantly create idols. Some of you, it's golf. For some of you, it's basketball. Can you believe that it's March Madness? Why, we'll spend more time watching basketball games than we will thinking about God or talking to him. Why do we do that? Because we really believe that the excitement of life comes in the basketball game. But when it's over, it's over. I must confess to you, my daughter was texting us about the fact that UNC was going to play Baylor yesterday. Did y'all see it? For those of you who didn't, you probably missed the only good game of the entire season. When the first number one team, Baylor, takes on UNC number eight, and as the game was going on, I was getting more anxious, so I started leaving the room. My wife, being a former cheerleader, was in the front of the TV screaming. <laughs> and the anxiety in our house was huge, and it was just so much fun. But when it was over, UNC won. Of course they did. Yeah. They always win, right? And then the question came, what's next? You see, that's, that's really the struggle in the human heart. The woman at the well, she said, give me this water that will bubble up to eternal life so I don't have to come to this well anymore. Are there places where you need Christ to satisfy you? 
Perhaps you're being tempted to be unfaithful in your marriage. Or you've had thoughts that maybe God doesn't love you. Or maybe, maybe you're thinking about something you did in the past and you're trying to cover it up and you've, you've come to the place where you can no longer sleep peacefully. You need the bread of life. You see, what happened in that moment was as Jesus was doing the will of his father, what he was pointing to the woman was that her satisfaction was in loving God with all of her heart, mind, soul, and strength. He said, that's the greatest satisfaction you'll have. And yet, you know something I've noticed in my life? Everything comes against that. Everything tempts me from that. Everything in the world doesn't encourage me to do that. And yet that was the purpose of our creation. It is to love God. And love him wholly. Completely. Madly. The second thing or that's to say the third thing that Jesus talks about is that he came to accomplish God's work, Father's work. If you turn to chapter 6, and you could do this later for your homework. If you turn to chapter 6, you'll find that Jesus talks about this is the will of God, that you believe in God and the one he has sent, Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I came to do the will of my Father, he came to offer himself as the one who can satisfy us. Who as we look to him and come to him alone, not to Buddha, not to Muhammad, not to anyone else, but come to Jesus and him alone, he can forgive us and cleanse us and reunite us in a relationship with our Father because of his great person, the Godhead who is now at work redeeming and sanctifying you and drawing you to, to God. The will of God is that you believe in Jesus Christ, that you so are convinced that he can satisfy, you will resist every other temptation to worship anything else that will displace him. But then Jesus goes on to say, I've come to accomplish the work, and there is the good news. You can't find or obtain the satisfaction that God offers except through Jesus and his work. Do you hear that? Jesus puts it this way. In chapter 6, he says, Why do you labor for food that perishes? I love that, don't you? When Cindy and I go out, uh, when we go away, we try to find a restaurant, a local restaurant that has local fare. We don't want one of these chains. We want the people who really know how to cook, right? So we'll, we'll search high and low for that place that will satisfy. And when we find it, we're like, oh, man, this is going to be good. And so we'll go and eat and, and just enjoy that meal and so grateful to God for it. But wouldn't it be just absolutely hilariously foolish for us to think we'll never have to, another, have, have to have another meal again? We did it. We ate the meal. 
I don't know if y'all have ever seen anybody hangry, or is it hungry? Oh, I know it's, it's angry and hungry together. What's the word that people use? Hankry, yeah. Have you ever seen somebody like that? It's not a pleasant thing. In fact, it can be quite frightening for some because uh, it's, it's a mixture of anger and hunger, and the more hungry the person gets, the more angry they get. Well, that's exactly what happens to the human person who tries to fill their life with anything but Christ. They get more hungry, and they get more angry. And when you come to Christ, the most amazing thing is that the gospel says that when you place your rest in him, you are completely satisfied. You are cleansed. You are one with God. You are satisfied. Isn't that beautiful? Look with me, if you would, at the verse. It's really quite powerful. Um, when Jesus is talking about this, he says, four months, this is verse 35, do you say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. What is he talking about? Well, he's using an illustration that, that everyone then would have understood. It's kind of like when you go out into the countryside and you see cotton in the fields. You know it's time to pick cotton. When? <laughs> when the cotton is blooming. You know, time, you know it's time to harvest the corn. When? When you see the corn turning brown and it's ready to be dried by the sun. You, you know the soybean are ready to be harvested. When? When the husk are no longer green and all the leaves have fallen off. You know that because then they are, the, the harvesters are out and they're on their machines, their John Deere's, whatever else they are using. They're, they're harvesting the crops. Why are they doing that? Because the time has come for the harvest. And I dare say that what Jesus is teaching us is that there is a time when everyone in this world is ripe for the message of who Christ is. And the work is to make Christ known. That's the work. The work he came to do was not just the work on the cross, but it continues as a work through you in this community. As you begin to rub shoulders with people and you look at what they're hungry for, you, you should be asking the question, are they ready? Are they ripe for the gospel? This past weekend, I went to a funeral of my uncle, my father's brother, who passed away. And I was asked to read in the scriptures for part of the service. And as I read, I read from Romans chapter 8. And, and after that service, I had a number of people come up to say, man, said, man you, you, you read with conviction. You read with such conviction about what you were sharing with us from Romans. And I said, well, of course I do, because I believe it, don't you? I said, well, I've never really thought about it. I said, well, now that we're facing death, what are you thinking about? Do you know that you will die too? And as I was talking with those individuals, within my family, by the way, I was poking around seeing, is it time for the harvest? Is it time? See, some of you have been praying for your family. You've been asking God to work in people's lives. Well, let me ask you, are you aware that they are going to be hungry for the food that will satisfy them? They will be. They may not be now. 
but there will come a time of harvest. And you see, as we go through this cultural changes we're seeing, all that's happening in our day, you're going to see a tremendous surge of hunger for truth. And the work, the work of the cross will be continued through the church, through you. Jesus says in 36, even now the reaper draws his wages and even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. What is he talking about? He's talking about that dynamic that you may have been talking with someone for, about Christ, you may have been talking to someone about Christ for a long time and then suddenly they call you up and say, I became a believer. How did that happen? Well, it's because you were planting seeds the whole time, but later, without your involvement, they came to know Christ. I'll never forget the first time that happened to me. His name was Kevin Murdoch. He was a roommate at the Citadel when my freshman year of college. Kevin was one of those unfortunate guys that had to live with me. And so I realized that being uh, in close quarters that I had to be very careful with what I said. And so I would just read the Bible as I went to bed at night and and every night before the lights out, I would make sure that I had covered a chapter of the scriptures. And as we would lay there in the dark, he, lived on, he was bunking above me and I was on the lower bunk. And as, every night, he, he would watch me read the scriptures and he would ask me after lights out, what have you been reading? And I said, well, I've been reading about, and I'd tell him the particular chapter. He said, what do you think that means? And I'd say, well, I think I understand Jesus to say this and this and this. And, and as I was doing that, something was happening in Kevin's life. I never saw. There was food being given to him that I'd had no knowledge of. And the most amazing thing happens. We went through an entire semester. I never shared with him the four spiritual laws of how to be saved. I never told him that he was going to hell. By the way, that doesn't work well. We, we had a member who did that. Uh, she was so angry at her husband for not being a Christian. She said that she's going to convert him. And I said, how are you going to do that? She said, I'm going to wake up every morning and tell him he's going to hell. About a year later, I asked how that was going. I think they divorced now. Didn't go well at all. Well, why do I say that? Well, Kevin, as he was having his answers... And his questions, God was at work creating the hunger. And at the right time, here I was giving the seed, planting. He calls me three months later. And he says, Robert, I have to tell you I gave my life to Christ. And I said, really? I was so shocked. How did that happen? He said, well, you know, you've been talking to me about what's in the Bible for months now, but I was at a particular church service and I suddenly realized the truth of the gospel. And I asked Christ into my life. And I just thought, well, darn, I didn't have anything to do with that. I can't put a notch on my belt. 
you know? You know what I'm talking about? The notch on your belt? How many people you saved? I had no ability to save him from the beginning. That woman at the well had no ability to be saved except that she began to be hungry and ask Jesus' questions. Can I tell you another story before I close? At the funeral, when we gathered after the funeral was over and the family was there together, there were some from both sides of the family, uh, which meant there were some Howards and there were some other people. I'm not sure who they were. But we were, we were gathered at this, and, and they asked me to do the opening prayer. And, and by the way, being the token pastor in a, in a family is really hard. Because whenever you're there, you have to pray for people. You know, isn't that funny? You know, it's not like people believe they can pray. Oh, let's call, let's call up Robert. He's the preacher. Let's let him pray. Some of you are like that here. It worries me. Because you're as close to God right now as I am. Did you know that? They asked me to pray, and they said, would you mind uh, just asking God? And this was the real funny thing. Would you bless the food? I said, sorry, I can't do that. And they looked at me and said, what? I said, I, I'm, I just don't have the power to bless the food. I can ask God to bless the food. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. I was like, okay, well, I, I can do that. And so as we were gathering, I said, I just want to say a couple of words before we pray. God loves you all. And though my Uncle Charles has passed away, I'm so grateful that God worked in his heart to make him hungry enough to want to hear the gospel and to believe it. And I want you to know that God doesn't want you to perish as well. And my hope and my prayer is that you will be not satisfied by this food. You'll be satisfied by the gospel. We're eating, eating lunch after that prayer is over and someone who I haven't seen in 35 years whose father passed away at the age of 45 and the young boy with two brothers raised by his mother who is now serving as a doctor in a town in South Carolina came to me and said, you know something? I want you to know I'm a believer too. And I want you to know it happened because in college I had a roommate who came to a conversion. And I saw the change in him. And when I saw that change, I knew it was real. And I wanted to know who that Jesus is. We had a wonderful conversation. But the most glorious thing about it all was that it was the truth that God in Jesus Christ is able to satisfy you if you are willing to come to him and be satisfied with his word. This is what Logan was talking about last week when he said that Jesus says, you must come and drink. Drink what? You must understand that it is not my words from this pulpit, it is not my influence or anyone else's influence that brings people to being satisfied. It is the word of Christ that satisfies the human heart that longs to be filled. And so if you come here on Sunday morning 
and this is the only time you are engaged with the scriptures or listening to the words of Jesus, you are anemic and will never be filled. But if you come to him in daily practice and look to God to fill you with his word, he says, I am the bread of life. I can satisfy you. Some of you are dealing with incredible lusts in your life and you have no power over it. Let me tell you why. Because your heart is an idol worshiper. And the only way that that lust will be taken care of is through the power of Christ and his presence in you. Some of you are dealing with financial worries and you're so overwhelmed with worry that it's robbing you. How do I know this? Well, remember the parable Jesus gave, the seed that was sown? Some was sown on rocky soil, some was sown in weeds, some was sown in, on the path, some was sown in good soil. In every one of those four circumstances, Jesus gives us the illustration of what happens when his word is spoken. And when the woman told these people, I have met a guy who told me about everything, you can better believe that those people said everything? I mean, like how immoral you really are? And she said, yes, he told me everything. Well, the curiosity in their hearts drove them out to see Jesus. And then at the end of the passage, did you read it? We came to Jesus because of what you told us about how he satisfied you. But we don't believe him because of you anymore. We are satisfied by his word. That's the power of Christ. That's the glory of Christ. That's the work of God. Jesus says, I've come to do the will of my Father. What's the will? That you believe upon the Father and the one he has sent. That's the will. But he's also come to do the work. What's the work? The work is the transformation of our hearts through his word. And that's what God wants to do to you this morning. He wants to transform your thinking, your behavior, as you give yourself to his word. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to you, we thank you that the word of God is life. It is eternal life. It's not life just after we're dead. Eternal life is that moment when we put our faith in Christ today, and it is every day after that day forever. And so this morning as we pray, Father, there may be someone in the sound of my voice who is really struggling this morning with faith. And I, I just want to, Lord, ask that you would guide them in thinking about what it is that they are eating. What is it that they're taking into their soul to sustain them in the days that they face? Are they looking to your word or are they trusting in the word of someone else? And my prayer is that for each of us, your word would become that rock on which we stand. Because we know that the storms will come. But that person who builds their house upon the rock, that rock is Jesus, will never be disappointed. And so we humbly pray, Father, Work within our hearts.
cause us to hunger and thirst for the word of Jesus. And we ask and we pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. And the people of God said together.